Well, thanks for, uh, for continuing to come. This is week uh, three now of our class on spiritual warfare. And uh, Bob's back in town, so I got to be back on my good behavior this week. Yeah, but no problem. We're, we're set for that. Um, <laughs> for the sake of review, and particularly for the sake of our, uh, of our students who are in here who haven't been with us the last couple weeks, uh, I want to just briefly uh, go over where we've, we've been. Uh, the first week we were together, we wanted to drill down deeply on the fact, the simple fact, that we do not have a closed, naturalistic view of the world or of the universe that we live in. But to the contrary, there is an invisible world. And so while a lot of the stuff that we see in Hollywood in regards to the supernatural While a lot of that stuff is, most of that stuff is, almost all of it is, pure fantasy, pure fiction, the reality of that truth, though, is in place. That there is an invisible realm, that there is an invisible world, and that we are at war. And last week we uh, spoke specifically about this invisible realm in regards to its beauty, not in regards to its darkness. After all, this invisible realm, this invisible world that exists, that's where God the Father and God the Son dwell. That's where the heavenly host prays His name day and night. And so we talked a bit about the beauty of those creatures uh, called angels. And then we began, we just started going down the road of knowing our enemy, and really, that's, that's where we kind of get into the heart of this class, is knowing our enemy, knowing his purposes, and then asking the question and wrestling with uh, the truths of how we fight, how we stand firm, how we hold fast in the midst of those things. And so, last week we talked about his origin the origin of Satan, the being known as Satan as the adversary. We talked about his purposes in his activity, namely glory. Violence to God's glory is his, uh, is, is his MO and um, exalting himself as best he can. And then we were just beginning to get into the tactics of how he works, and that's where we pick up today. I've printed out a new uh, handout. It's a revised handout, but it has uh, some overlap from last week's handout, and it also has uh, the same thing that was printed on last week's handout that we never did even address on the back of each, uh, of each paper. Um, one of the things that I started with last week um, is the fact that there is a lot of mystery in regards to how Satan works. We know Satan has limitations. We know the demonic realm has limitations. We know that God is sovereign, that God rules. But how exactly Satan deals with us, to what extent his powers extend to us, is a bit of a mystery. And so I wanted to warn us, I wanted to remind us to be careful at simply stating, this is how things work. There's, there, there's a lot of 
Maybe a lot is too strong. There, there are plenty of people uh, in the church, in the evangelical world, that state firmly, this is how things work. And I think we should be slow to just declare, this is how things work. If we don't have clear scriptural proof and backing for those things. Underscoring this whole section is the fact that Satan works strategically. That Satan works strategically, that he is not um, just shooting from the hip, as they say, but that he is thoughtful, he is intentional. Ephesians 6, 11, which is a passage that we are going to dive deeply into in the next several weeks Ephesians 6, verse 11, talks about standing fast against the schemes of the devil. Methodia, the word where we get, the Greek word where we get our word method, right? There is a method to his madness. And so constantly, Satan and his minions are, pla- are, are hatching new plans are exploiting new angles to come at the human heart, to come at human institutions, to move culture. And so what exactly does this look like? And this is where I want to go through the things you see on your list, the tactics uh, that, that Scripture really makes clear and draws out for us. Um, before I, I do this, I want to plant a couple questions in your mind that I'm going to return to when I get to the end of this section. And the first question is, I want you um, to be thinking about ways that you have been assaulted yourself. And maybe you're willing to share uh, among us uh, something that has gone on in your life, uh, ways that the enemy has come at you and attacked you. And then secondarily, where do you see uh, Satan's methodology, his schemes, his strategies, as you take a step back from your own individual life, lives, that was a combination between life and lives, uh, as you take a step back from your lives, where do you see his schemes and strategies in the larger institutions that we exist in? I'm thinking about Ascension Presbyterian Church, or Seattle, Washington, or Western culture. And let's just think about those things and wrestle with those things. So I'm going to ask those questions so you can just kind of have that in the back of your mind as we kind of walk through. Individually, where are you struggling, or where have you been assaulted? What battles are you facing as a Christian? And then secondarily, where is Satan, where are his strategies taking hold in our society? I want to begin with um, a story, not a story like a fairy tale, but a story like an account, like an article. And uh, some of you may have read this before, you may have come across it uh, before. This is off the Gospel Coalition website, and uh, this is written by um, someone I know, Uh, Her name is Eowyn Stoddard. Uh, Her and her husband, David, are MTW missionaries in Berlin, Germany. And uh, the church that I previously served in San Diego, uh, we were supporters of David and Eowyn. Uh, They came and would speak to us. 
And uh, Eowyn's father is Peter Jones, who is one of my former professors at Westminster Seminary in California. So that just gives you some context as to um, her roots and, um, and her ministry. And it's an uh, article, I'm not going to read the whole entire thing, but I want to read a little bit of it. Um, it came out uh, in 2013 is when she wrote it and posted it on the Gospel Coalition. She says this, after a few months on our mission field, a post-communist dead atheistic region, my family and I were reeling from shock. No, not culture shock, though there was plenty of that. It was the shock of coming face to face with demonic forces beyond our comprehension. Numerous strange events transpired. Leaders of urine poured onto our stroller, blood splattered on our apartment door, a small hole drilled into our front door indicating a planned break-in, much sickness, poor sleep, even sensing an evil presence in our bedroom. At first we thought we were imagining things, but the horrid climax was the nightmare that tormented our two-year-old son. For many months he'd wake up screaming bloody murder and we could not easily settle him back down. At two and a half, he was finally able to verbalize what he'd been dreaming about for the past few months. One of his most vivid dreams was about a woman with black hair and red eyes who wore only a bra and black pants and would offer him a basket of rotten fruit and force him to eat it. His nightmare was X-rated, not a typical toddler being chased by a bare dream. Satan was not playing fair. Now the shock turned to anger. I scanned the recesses of my brain, what had seminary taught me about demonic activity. I couldn't recall any class where we had discussed anything remotely similar to what we were experiencing. She went to Westminster Seminary, California. (laughs) Demonology 101 wasn't even offered, but seminary did teach me not to panic in the face of theological conundrums. It gave me a lens through which I could see everything from the perspective of God's sovereignty. What we experienced was normal for our context, as many missionaries can testify to similar kinds of things. I call these sorts of scare tactics demonic bullying. In a place where the number of Christians is less than 1%, and the rest of the population is consciously or unconsciously worshiping the enemy, this is not at all surprising. Satan does not want people rescued out of darkness and brought into light. He will use ordinary, frustrating events to harass the believer, and occasionally he will employ extraordinary means to bolster his scare tactics, as was the case of my son's dream. Because we are so overwhelmed with our situation, we needed help. We called our teammates to come and pray with us while our son was asleep. We prayed at his bedroom windows. That God would not allow any evil to enter into his room, that he would sleep peacefully. The next morning I asked him, did you have a nightmare last night? His toddler answer was flabbergasting. Yes, but this time the woman was outside my window and she couldn't come in. We don't typically enjoy the privilege of seeing when and how God is acting in the supernatural world, but this time we did. It was as if God was pulling back the heavenly curtain for us just for a moment. God in his sovereignty was ministering to my little boy, protecting and comforting him in ways that I could not. We were given a sneak peek into how God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his will, how that glimpse ministered to our souls during that dark season. It's a powerful testimony, isn't it?
And I, gave, I wanted to give her background because I think sometimes we, we as Reformed Presbyterians, we get real nervous and real shaky about that kind of stuff, about those kind of accounts. And that here are Reformed Presbyterian missionaries serving faithfully in a place that is dark and experiencing what I would say is direct assault. And this is one of the things that, that Satan does from time to time. One of the things that his demonic realm do, does from time to time is they use ter- terrorist tactics to, 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 to intimidate, to bring about fear. This can happen through persecution. This can happen through suffering. This can happen through abnormal events such as the one that I read just now. It's, it, it's a powerful picture. It's, um, it's gripping. It's encouraging. But I also want us to recognize that this is not the normal way. This is not the common way. We've heard a lot of missionary stories. I've heard a lot. Maybe you haven't, but I suspect many of you have heard a lot of missionary stories of that kind of direct assault, that kind of demonic activity through animistic cultures, through witch doctors, through that kind of thing. And that's real. That happens. And we ought not just dismiss it. Oh, that's just sensationalism. Forget about that. That's not real. Because it is real and it does happen. But our common interaction with the demonic realm is, I think, more geared toward these other things. This is a quote from your book, uh, from our book that we read. Um, Page 80, Chip Ingram says, The great majority of spiritual warfare need never go beyond the regular practice of living out our position in Christ by faith. And so while we don't want to discount uh, events such as Eowyn shares and the reality and the possibility of those events, even in our lives, even in our area, we don't want to camp out on there and, and, and say that that's, that is the place where Satan most often dwells. The place where Satan most often dwells, I think, for us is in the mundane moments of our lives. And I've divided them into three sections, uh, the first having to do with temptation. Temptation simply being the fact that Satan and his uh, followers orchestrate our circumstances, move the desires of our flesh even the thoughts of our minds, and we talked a little bit about last week and about how that exactly works, I don't know, to draw us from God. I found a book on my shelf. The Puritans were always good at at titles, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, written by Thomas Brooks, first published in 1652. And he writes of, uh, it's really interesting how he divides up this book. He says, he writes of, of 12 devices that Satan uses to draw the soul to sin. 
I'll just give you three of them. He says, by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. And he goes on to explain what that looks like. By extenuating and lessening sin. By persuading the soul that repentance is easy and therefore the soul not scruple about sinning. And then he writes of eight devices to keep souls from holy duties. I'll give you a couple. By presenting to the soul the difficulty of performing religious duties by tempting Christians to rest in their performances. The next section he writes of eight devices to keep saints in a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable position. I'll just give you one of those. By causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. And then lastly, he writes of five devices to destroy and ensnare all sorts and ranks of men in the world. I'll just give you one. He says, by moving them to pride themselves on all their parts and on all their abilities. And of course, we all have, based upon our experiences, based upon our makeups, those unique things that the evil one likes to seize upon, anxieties, fears, anger, pride, all those things that the, that the evil one uses and manipulates for his purposes. The second is deception. We know from Scripture, John 8, that Satan is the father of lies. We know from Genesis 3, the first time we see Satan in Scripture, that his, one of his tactics is to cast doubt on God's goodness and on God's intention for us as his people. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. The parable of the sower, he snatches the word away before it can be really meditated on and digested. He is behind all religious counterfeits, 1 Timothy 4.1. And then the last, I think, powerful tactic beyond temptation, beyond deception, is accusation. And this is just that, that work of the evil one, and it goes with deception, convincing you that you are alone, convincing you that you are not a child of God, that you're an orphan, that God doesn't care for you, that he isn't your good father, that he isn't out for your good, but that you are an orphan. Zechariah 3.1 gives us this picture of Joshua where he accuses him of his unworthiness. Revelation 12.10 Another passage to look at. Temptation, deception, accusation. These are some of the tactics that the evil one likes to use in order to mar the glory of God, in order to wreck the faith of the child of God. And so I ask you, this is, uh, I kind of flew through that. We could have camped out a bit more, but as I thought about teaching this, I thought, well, I, I, first of all, I don't want to merely lecture the entire time. But I thought, isn't, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, 
isn't this a question that we ought to be asking? Maybe you're not, you know, ready or, and that's fine if you're not, to share amongst this whole group what you might be struggling with, might battles you might have faced, how the enemy might have wreaked havoc in your life. But as brothers and sisters, I think that's a question that, uh, that probably ought to be part of our regular interactions with one another. What battles are you facing? How can I pray for you this week? Checking in on the Lord's Day. Talk to me about your struggles. Talk to me about your battles. So, anyway, if anyone is willing to, uh, to share a little bit of, of their experience, um, or you can go to the uh, higher level, uh, how you see Satan working in our society. Tim. Amen. Great comments. Theo. Well, I I consider people who can't who, who recognize the calling of God as a child and, and answered that call to be very very fortunate people because um, I, I didn't I didn't answer the call until I was twenty five years old. Uh, as a result of I have 25 years of BC, you know, 
And during those years, they were really critical years in history. They were the 60s. And so I now, at age 73, still have vivid memories of, of things that happened in my life prior to coming to the Lord. Uh, and th it's a place that Satan attacks me all the time. Mm. I will catch myself in the middle of a memory that I, that I stick with too long. Mm. And I have to shake my head and say, get behind me, Satan. That is not me mm. anymore. Mm. I've been redeemed from that. But it's a, it's a playground for him. And uh, so, you know, I, I wish that I had come to the Lord earlier in my life. Mm. That I would that I wouldn't have so many of those memories. Mm. Because it, it's, it's not something that is going to take me down because I understand what's going on. But I sure wish I could get over it quicker sometimes. You know, it goes on for a couple of minutes and I say, oh man, I'm in the middle of, of another one of those things, you know. Yeah. And I have to shake it off. Yeah. And so... Uh, That's good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Anybody else? The assaults of the enemy on you. Joyce. Because of circumstances of my childhood, I have struggled with the feeling of not belonging. Mm. Being somewhere where I'm not wanted. And I thought, <clears throat> because of my identity in Christ, that this had been defeated. I'm in a new job uh, this November, and they've put me into a store where someone has been for four years, and suddenly I'm new territory. I'm taking commissions we could be getting. And, um, and this whole sense has welled up again. And I have fought this every time that sense of, oh, he doesn't want me here. I've, I've fought this by saying, that's Satan, and I'm not going to let that thought land. Mm. That's not going to affect the way I feel. Last Tuesday, my first day at work after the weekend, it was I could not shake the feeling that I was being rushed out mm. mentally. Mm. And I called Doug and asked for prayer. Mm. And, and we joined in asking for God's protection. I felt him relief. And the next day, I saw visible confirmation that I am where God wants me to be. And, and I kept inviting him to affirm to me. But I had to fight this battle with the word, with who I am in Christ, mm. and with asking for reinforcement. Mm. So not letting myself be isolated and feel alone, not letting Satan continue to affect my feelings, but just to say, I know you want me to feel that, but this is what God said. Mm. And I won't let your influence land. It's not going to take root. And it was a struggle. Mm. I'm grateful for what you're teaching. Thanks for sharing. The, um, yeah, Jeff.
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's it's a uh, that's a point well taken from kind of the, the, this, you know, the, the, the ex- exciting, sensational stories of demonic bullying to the, you know, vivid stories of, of persecution and suffering and lies to the mundane uh, idolatry of the checkbook, the 401k, whatever the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. Mike. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you in my study of the Scriptures, and feel free to jump in, any of you, but in my study of the Scriptures, you know, there's a, there, that's, a, that's a, a very mysterious thing in terms of their knowledge of, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that the Scripture gives us indication that, um, that uh, demons can can read our thoughts or know our actions, and yet, if you think about the demonic realm as a very well organized principalities and powers, um, you think about the age of the demonic realm in terms of their experience of humankind, and um, I think they that added to the mystery of how exactly the spiritual realm works. Um, I think we can pretty, be pretty confident that though they can't uh, read our minds, they can pretty much, like, like those good chess players, they can know your next four moves based upon what they know of you and your wounds and your history and your tendencies that you've shown already uh, based upon uh, their own tactics and their experience with humankind. Um, and so... Yeah, the, the scriptures don't give us a clear indication of of the knowledge. They give us a clear indication of the limitations um, 
of the demonic realm, but not the specifics of they know this, they don't know that. Jeff, did you want to chime in? Yeah. 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 Like so right. So, yeah, I mean, the wisdom. Yeah. Doug. Um, just as an aside, I know you mentioned it a week or so ago. A good book to get sort of a a fantasy look into into things, but but not an unreal look. Is the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that it's necessarily scripturally sound in every regard, but it certainly is a good window yeah. into, into how that whole thing works in some cases, I would say. Yeah, how many of you have read the Screwtape Letters at some point? Yeah, good, good number of you. If you haven't read it, it is a, it is a book worth picking up and uh, wrestling with, and I've quoted it quite a few times in, uh, in various contexts. Um, m- maybe this would be a good segue, because one of the things that uh, Mike's question, which is a good one in terms of, you know, we know the demonic realm is not, we know they're limited, they serve God's sovereignty ultimately, but we know they're powerful, they're wise, they're strategic. Um, there may be a temptation there to, to, for, for anxiety to boil up or for fear to boil up there. And one of the places I wanted to go, and we don't nearly have as much time as I wanted to go there, but one of the things I wanted to camp out on today is this notion of victory. Out of your reading, uh, which was chapter four this week, um, there was this truth, this small chapter with a big truth, and it was this. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. And I think that reality that, that the author of this book, Chip Ingram, brings out, is not, it's not just semantics. I think it matters. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. I mean, the battle that we're talking about, temptation, accusation, deception, those things beyond direct assault, those things are, that's a battle that is waged primarily in the mind, right? In the heart and in the mind of the believer. 1 Peter 1, chapter 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 2 verse we know well, talks about the renewal of your mind. And so as we begin to kind of turn from, okay, assessing our enemy, categorizing his tactics, knowing his limitations, at least as much as we can understand them, as we kind of begin to turn the corner now to think about, okay, now what do we do? How do we deal with this? And I hope some of that stuff that Jeff brought out will come out in these next few weeks in terms of the ways that we fight uh, specific battles in our lives. But I think to begin to combat the father of lies, we've got to begin with truth, right? You've, you've, you've heard, maybe you've heard me say it, you've heard some preacher say it, that when they, when they teach people how to find out 
you know, how to, how, to find, how to discern counterfeit money. They don't study counterfeit money, right? They study the real thing. They study the true thing. And then knowing the true thing, they can discern when uh, the counterfeit is there. And so, uh, I think for us, we begin with filling our mind with His promises, His truth, and specifically, His victory. Two things, real quickly, and we got to quit. Our foe is defeated, and the outcome is sure. We must never forget in this battle, as we think about the forces of darkness waging war against our souls and against the glory of Christ and His name, we're going to talk about what it means to stand, but we must never forget that Jesus, when He came on when he came to this earth, that Jesus was actually the aggressor, right? While he was on earth, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead, and every time he did that, that was a body blow to the kingdom of darkness. And it all culminated, of course, in his work on the cross. John 12, 31, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so our foe is defeated, the outcome is sure, and that's a truth that we have got to keep in mind. And the second truth is that we have sufficient grace and power to fight our battles. Ephesians 6 says, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. Literally, it's be strengthened. Picking apart that that Greek phrase, it's in the passive voice. Be strengthened in the Lord, meaning that the empowerment is from the outside. It's not just something you muster up from inside you. And it's in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing, constant supply. And so there was that quote at the beginning of the chapter that, you were, uh, that some of you read this week, chapter 4, from John of the Cross, says, the devil fears a soul united to God as he does God himself. Well, perhaps that's a bit overstated, but it's a partial reality that I think we need to remember that Jesus is our victory. And so as we are in Him, as we live in Him, as we are united to Him, we have sufficient grace, we have sufficient power to stand and to fight effectively against the schemes of the evil one. In Ephesians, where, you know, Paul gets to the spiritual warfare stuff right at the end of the letter. But where does he begin? He begins with that wonderful run-on sentence of chapter 1. In him you were predestined. In him you were called. In him, in him. One author I read says, knowing the truth, is a quote, knowing the truth of who we are in union with Christ, cultivating the virtues of this new identity, and using the resources available through this new relationship are at the heart of what it means to put on the armor of God. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. We need to quit. I was going to say more on this fact, but that's kind of the 
the, the springboard that I want to jump from to now go into kind of the heart of Ephesians chapter 6 and that suiting up of the armor of God. That's where we're headed next. And, and some of that other stuff that, that we, we, we talked about, some of those other areas that we just touched in terms of the way the evil one works, the schemes, the strategies, will, will come out as we think about the combating of those things. But I really wanted to, before we went there, underscore and underline this notion of victory. One more quote for you and then we'll quit. This is from Timothy Warner, one of the other books that I've been reading. He says, one of the great needs of the church today is to bring the truth about the victory of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit from the realm of theory or professed belief into the realm of practical experience. We need to stop allowing fear to motivate us when demons are mentioned and begin treating demons like the defeated enemies that they are. Satan has often succeeded in getting us to think that if we so much as study this subject, something awful may happen to us. The opposite is true. The more we know about our victory in Christ, and the more we know about our defeated enemy, the more confident we will be in the conflict in which we are engaged and cannot avoid. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... uh, the victory of Jesus, for the reality of what He accomplished on the cross, for the violence that He did to the powers of darkness that still still roam this earth but do not reign supreme. And Father, I pray that as we continue to engage, as we continue to to search our own hearts and to ask, where are we vulnerable? Where do we need others? Where do we need to gird up our defenses? Where do we need to sharpen our weapons? Father, as we continue to think through these things, guided by Your Spirit, guided by Your Word, We ask for us that we would live in the identity of who we are, that we would live and fight in the victory that is ours through Christ. Lord God, I pray specifically for us as a church that we would be a church that shares openly concerning our battles, concerning our struggles, that we would be united in our desire to not let the enemy gain a foothold in any of our lives. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. Impress them upon our hearts. Continue to guide us And lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.